Welcome to Timothy Eden Memorial Church, a place for life. Connect, participate, celebrate. Please join me in a moment of prayer. Let us pray. To you, O God, we give this moment in our lives to hear what the Spirit has to say to us. And we pray, O Lord, that through my words your Spirit may speak, and to each one of us you may address yourself clearly, that we may hear you. So we dedicate this time in our lives to you and the power of your Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. He spoke with a clarity and a compassion and a deep well of knowledge in a lecture that I heard last week where the Bishop of Malaysia of the Methodist Church, Bishop Young, spoke from the depths of his heart about the mission of the church. He addressed historically what has happened to the mission of the Christian church over the last hundred years, and that was the nature of his academic work. He looked, for example, at how Christians had come together in Edinburgh in 1910 for a World Missionary Conference to see how the various denominations could work together to enhance the mission of the church throughout the globe. It was, in fact, interesting that arising out of that 1910 conference that the United Church of Canada 15 years later was born, where different denominations came together to have a common mission within Canada and the world. And of course, in 2025, we'll be celebrating the 100th anniversary of our denomination, and Timothy Memorial Church will be one of the places where a service will be held to commemorate this, and it'll be broadcast throughout the nation. But in 1910, there began a movement, the ecumenical movement and a missionary movement. It had other conferences in Uppsala, Sweden in 1968, in Cape Town in 2010. But he points out that in that hundred years, a great deal changed in the Christian mission and the Christian world. For example, in 1910, 80% of the confessing Christians in the world lived in the North and the West, and 20% lived in what is known as the majority world, or the rest of the world. But by 2010, everything had changed. The majority world was now 66% of the Christians in the world and the North and the West was only 34%. In a hundred years, Christianity had gone through and has gone through a seismic shift. He points out that throughout that hundred years, the Northern and the Western churches have to a large extent not concentrated sufficiently on doctrine and on the person of Christ, and have been consumed by unity 
and the desire for a mission that brings everyone together, but does not look at it always theologically. He suggests that even to this day, despite this mega shift that has taken place, according to the great missiologist Andrew Walls, African theologians and ministers are hardly even quoted, and that in the North and the West we still think the mission goes from us to the rest of the world rather than the rest of the world to us. Now, he says this not to depress the Northern and the Western church. He's not trying to make people feel disheartened or discouraged, but he does feel that the shift that has taken place should make us all realize that regardless of where we are in the world, even in the North and the West, even in the supposed affluent countries of the world, we are still ourselves the center and the focus of where mission should take place. I remember myself 30 years ago at a conference on mission speaking and saying that I felt that it was time for the majority world to send missionaries maybe to us and not to always think of it going the other way. Indeed, the world has changed, and there is a global phenomenon of Christianity finding its roots in very different places. But we shouldn't be surprised by this. When I look at the passage from the book of Acts today, I find a passage that speaks about the nature and the expansion and the reach of the gospel. From very humble roots, the Christians, the early believers gathered in an upper room, as we looked at a few weeks ago, to wait patiently for the coming of the Holy Spirit. Jesus had ascended to heaven and he had promised that they would receive power when the Holy Spirit came upon them and they would then be his witnesses. Well, I've saved that actual moment to today for two reasons. One, because we've been looking at the Spirit and the renewal of creation and the renewal of the world. But this is also, by the way, in terms of our Eastern Orthodox friends and fellow Christians, their Pentecost. So I think it's fitting, maybe, to concentrate on this text there and then. This is important. The Spirit came upon those early believers and transformed them and changed them and empowered them. They not only were able to speak in a language that everyone could understand regardless of where they were from, but they also had a profound sense that the mission of Jesus Christ was continuing in their words and in the activity of the Spirit in their lives. Jesus, the risen Lord, continued then to work through and in the power of the Holy Spirit amongst that fledgling community. And there are lessons for all of us, I think, from that moment. And that's what Bishop Jung was getting at and what I want to look at today with a great sense of passion and a great focus on mission right here and right now. And the first thing we learn from that very earliest Acts experience 
though it must never and cannot be ever a complete template for what we experience, there are always going to be differences. Nevertheless, the fact of the matter is, from its very origins, the church was global in its nature. The church was global in its nature. In Jerusalem, at the time that the Spirit came upon the disciples, there were many difficult things that people were dealing with. We forget that the Spirit came upon those disciples at a time when they were subjugated by Roman power. They had a ruler in charge of their nation, and they could not come and they could not go without the permission of a Roman hegemony. It was everywhere present, a powerful empire at its peak. But there were also their own political leaders, their own monarchs, who themselves had become co-opted by the power of Rome and were themselves almost silent in the face of oppression and difficulties. The people were still, I think, wistfully looking back to the days of the Maccabean revolt 164 years before, and thinking of the glory days when they could overthrow the Seleucian uh, powers, but many had died in those times, and they were looking back now and questioning their history, and wondering whether their history was all that it was cracked up to be. Their religious leaders were divided, Amongst the Jewish community, the Levites, the scribes, and the Pharisees had different views on interpretations of the law, how to worship God, whether or not there was a resurrection from the dead. This was not a homogeneous group of people that gathered in Jerusalem. But even more than that, we're told that they were so diverse that they'd come from all the nations under heaven. Well, an exaggeration, but certainly all the nations in which Jews were present and coming back to Jerusalem for the Passover. Look, they came from as far west as Rome. They came from as far south as Egypt. They came from Phrygia and Cappadocia and and Crete. They were Arabs. Uh, They were people who were coming from Europe. I mean, this was a diverse group of people that were coming into Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And at that very moment, when the nations of the world were gathered in Jerusalem, God poured out his spirit upon his disciples to speak to them in a language that they could understand. It mattered not where they were from, the tongue, the power of the Holy Spirit spoke with conviction, regardless of where they were from. And even when you look in the book of Acts at some of the people who became Christians as a result of the witness and the power of the Holy Spirit, we find an Ethiopian eunuch, probably called Simeon who became a believer and a follower in Jesus Christ. We have Cornelius, a Roman centurion, who became a Christian and heard the gospel and responded. Even before the ministry of Paul then to the Gentile world, the very earliest body of Christ was a global body of Christ. It was made up of the parts of the world that represented the breadth and the universality 
of the world as they knew it at that time. That is why, for those who were the very earliest believers, they took no account of a person's race or color or language or culture or nationality. None of those things mattered, they felt, because in to quote the great prophet Joel, when the Spirit comes, all flesh, and we said this in our opening words today, all flesh will respond and hear about the Spirit of the living God affirming the person of Jesus Christ. It is not surprising that this notion of the universality of the global reach of the earliest Christians was manifested even in the Christian creeds. Those who wrote the Apostles' Creed a few hundred years later said these words, and you will have said them too if you've been confirmed in the church. I believe in the holy Catholic Church. And by Catholic, we mean universal. The universal church. No boundaries, no distinctions. This is not a white person's religion. It is not a brown person's religion or a black person's religion or an Asian person's religion or an indigenous person's religion. It is Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior pouring out his Spirit on all flesh regardless of the background and the tradition from which people come. And I think we lose that sometimes. I'll be honest with you. I have read some absolutely atrocious things over the last few weeks online and even in articles that talk about the Christian faith as if it is or was or should be simply within the confines of a particular racial or linguistic demographic. And this runs contrary, completely contrary, to the nature of the church from its very beginnings. I like what Bishop Jung was saying. It is everywhere and to all people that the Spirit and the church has a mission. Just to bring this home, I was reading the history of some of the Canadian theologians, ministers, preachers, and we forget sometimes some of the names. We think of of famous names, maybe from famous pulpits or particular seminaries who have written academic works of some note. But I ran across a name I had heard a long time ago, but did not really focus on, a man called Josiah Henson. And Josiah Henson was born in 1789 in Maryland. He was a slave, a black slave. And at the age of 18, became a committed Christian. And over the next few years, led through the Underground Railroad, Blacks to freedom and emancipation, helping them cross the border to come into Canada. When in 1830, arrived in Dresden, Ontario, and there 
he set up the Dawn Community, D-A-W-N, the Dawn Community. He made sure that people had the opportunity to pray and to worship. And all along under the underground, even when some of them went home after the Emancipation Proclamation, he was still there helping people, nurturing them, saving them from grief because of his faith in Christ, because of his sense of freedom, so much so that even one of the greatest Christian preachers of all time in the West, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, had him preach at his church. A Canadian, really, and a legend. You see, I think Andrew Walls is right. We, we sometimes think that we only have a certain canon, a certain group of people that we can turn to for our theological support and nurture and inspiration. But it's always more global. It's always more far-reaching than we ever know. And that we found at the very beginning in the book of Acts. The Spirit has no boundaries on the Spirit's work. And we shouldn't set up any boundaries either. But the mission of the church is always local. It's not just global. It's right here. It's right now. There are, of course, similarities between Jerusalem at the very beginning of the first century AD and Toronto, where we are now. Now, there are profound differences. And 2,000 years has made a big difference in terms of history. There is baggage that we have to carry around with us as we all know and have talked about recently, but there are also wonderful things that have been done and great achievements. But the fact of the matter is, there are certain things about Jerusalem in the time of those earliest disciples and we in Toronto that are eerily similar. I mean, Jerusalem was in many ways quite a violent place. It was violent because of the presence of the Roman Empire. It was there that there were groups uh, that were radical trying to overthrow the Romans. There were those who, when we look at the crucifixion of Jesus, wanted to save Barabbas. Well, they were, in a sense, insurrectionists. So there was violence in the city. There was a, a deep sense of being ill at ease. There was fear of, even hatred of, the oppressor. And there was tension, even within, as I said, the religious community, who looked upon each other with suspicion, and certainly looked upon the new Christians, the new followers of Jesus Christ with suspicion. This was the state of affairs. When I look at Toronto right now, I must admit I think we need a profound spiritual renewal in our city. I mean, I'm just thinking of the number of young people who this year alone and over COVID have died as a result of stabbings and shootings. You can't even go on in the morning on CP24 and it just becomes depressing about what happened the night before. And it's a constant trickle. No, it's not a great big flood. It's a constant trickle. But it's a sign of, of 
a toxic spirit within our city that there is violence in certain segments and in certain areas, mainly with the subjugation of the poorest in our city, and it should bother us. There is a mission to young people who are involved in such activity. There is profound differences of opinion and even hatred at times amongst people of different religious traditions. Just this last week, I had conversations with a leading rabbi here in Toronto. I've known him for a while and I respect him. And he was talking to me about the threats and the problems of anti-Semitism. And he thanked me for calling him and reaching out to him to express my, my love and my concern and to say that this is unacceptable. I called an imam who I have known and actually taken part in a few events with over the years. And I explained to him my deep concern about Islamophobia. I've spoken to indigenous leaders, mainly Christian theologians and those ministering in indigenous communities about the pain that they are facing. But even on our own doorstep, and I want to tell you this, even in our own doorstep here at Timothy Eaton, we had a memorial on our steps through some of the members of our congregation for the children who had died in Kamloops. We'd put out, and they had put out shoes and an orange jacket. And within a day, the orange jacket had gone, so we put up a sign saying this is a memorial. And then all of a sudden, the shoes disappeared. Now, I can understand if somebody needs shoes and they're poor, fine. An orange jacket, fine. But they also took down the sign. You see, there's something not right here in our city. And there is something that needs to be addressed. And I don't believe that you can simply legislate people's goodness, as important as it is. I don't think you can stamp out hatred and avarice just simply by a stroke of a law or a piece of paper. I think these things go much deeper, just as they did in Jerusalem in the time of Jesus. I was reading a quote in a book by David Watson, One in the Spirit, a book I always turn to himself, an Anglican from York in England, now deceased, a wonderful man who I knew personally, who had a quote from one of my heroes, Richard Baxter, who was a reformed theologian and pastor during the Reformation in England, and someone that I studied on my sabbatical at Oxford. Baxter said this a long time ago. The work of God must needs be done. Souls must not perish while you mind your worldly business or observe the tide and the times and take your ease or quarrel with your brethren. Watson went on and said, we are all on urgent business for the Lord. We must therefore sink our differences, remember the fact of our oneness in Christ, and unite together to proclaim our Lord and our Savior. 
We can do many things in mission in our society, and so we should. We should care first for the poor and the vulnerable, the weak, the sick, the hurting, the lonely, the dispossessed. We should have an outreach and a mission that really is costly on our part. But we must also have a mission to the spiritual life of our people and the spiritual life of our city and the spiritual life of the church. Baxter points out that all these other things that we do are focused on worldly things, but there comes a time when one must also concentrate on the things of the Spirit, the things that are transcendent, the things that ultimately save us, which we find in the gospel of Jesus our Lord. And in that Spirit, with that Spirit working in us, we find a renewed mission. Wherever you are today, listening or watching, I hope you will turn deeply in prayer and ask for the Holy Spirit to give you a mission in our city and to be witnesses to the wonders and the signs, to quote our text today, of our wonderful and glorious God. May you, as Jung said, Pastor Jung, Bishop Jung, may you find your mission right now. Amen.